Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at belief? Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to episode 19 of the Lovable Podcast. Uh, today, we are going to start talking about loneliness. And here's the core of the loneliness problem. It's that we think it's a problem. Um, but the real problem is how we relate to our loneliness and the burden we put on our relationships to take away all of our loneliness. So today, we're going to start to cultivate a healthier relationship to our loneliness, which in turn will lead to healthier relationships with everyone else. Before we do that, though, I want to tell you about a really special op- opportunity here. I'm super excited. Uh, last March, I had the good fortune to go on a, a podcast with Ashton Gustafson. Uh, it was called Let the Music Play at that point. And uh, he and his wife, Bryn, and my wife and I have developed a friendship. And uh, they are bringing us down to Waco, Texas, to their place uh, the weekend of April 20th. And together, we are going to host a, a lovable retreat weekend. Um, and uh, we have a few spots open still, and we would love for you to join us. So if you are interested in coming to Waco uh, the weekend of April 20th and joining a small group of people to really dive deeply into the ideas that we discuss in Lovable, um, we would love to meet you there. So if you're interested, go to mkt.com backslash Ashton. It's mkt.com backslash Ashton, and we will see you in Waco in a couple months. And as always, a quick reminder, these podcasts are being recorded every Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock Central Time or Chicago Time on Facebook Live. So at that time on Wednesdays, you can go to the Dr. Kelly Flanagan Facebook page and join us. Um, and uh, if, if you want reminders of, of when these are being recorded and you aren't subscribed to my newsletter, go to drkellyflanagan.com. It's drkellyflanagan.com. And in the right sidebar, you can subscribe to the newsletter. You'll get a reminder of these recordings. You'll get a reminder in that weekly newsletter of when new blog posts and new podcast episodes come out. And you'll get a free copy of the Marriage Manifesto and a free sample of Lovable. So um, go there, check that out, make sure you're signed up. Um, And of course, if you want more than just a a sample of Lovable, you can go anywhere books are sold um, to pick up a copy, either digital, paperback, or audio. Um, And you can also go to lovablethebook.com to find out more about... um, lovable. So it's lovablethebook.com. All right. I think that is it. Um, We are shifting into a new uh, stretch of of episodes in this year of listening, loving, and living, focusing on our relationships and belonging and loving. And we are going to start off by talking about loneliness. So let's get into that right now. Thanks for listening in, everybody. Hello there, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 18 of the year of listening, loving, and living. This week is entitled A Kid Named Lonely. How's that for starting out a little heavy? Uh, This week marks a qualitative shift in this year-long journey from focusing on cultivating a sense of worthiness to now cultivating places of belonging in our relationships. 
And we're start out by tackling the experience that most of us would consider the opposite of true belonging, which is loneliness. But before we do any of that, I want to pause here at the outset and do something a little bit different. Rather than discussing your experiences so far in the year of listening, loving, and living, which is what we've been doing sort of at this stage of the, the podcast episodes, I want to hear from you about what you anticipate as we shift our focus from our relationship with ourself to our relationship with others, from worthiness to belonging, from recognizing who we are to revealing who we are. Um, what do you hope for from these months? What are you excited about? What do you fear What's on your mind as you think about trading in some of your loneliness for some true belonging? So while you're contemplating those questions and formulating your thoughts, I thought I'd spend a few minutes introducing this next part of the companion book. So remember, part one was entitled Listening, Identity Recognition. And those, month, those months, those weeks and months, were focused on the inward journey back to our true self. And now this week, we're beginning part two, which is entitled Loving, Identity Revelation. So here we take the worthiness that we've discovered on our inward journey and we begin to reveal our true self as we embark upon the outward journey into our relationships. So I, I read this at the end of the last episode and I want to read it again. It's the epigraph that begins part two of the companion book and it's from Frederick Buechner and it, it, this, is, this is what he wrote. You can survive on your own. You can grow strong on your own. You can prevail on your own, but you cannot become human on your own. And uh, and to me, that captures this idea that um, so often we sort of skip the months of listening, we skip the work of embracing our worthiness and jump right into our relationships. Um, and that pressing pause on that and going back and doing the, the work of the inward journey and embracing our worthiness was not about saying we don't need relationships, but it was about saying we need a foundation for our relationships. And our sense of worthiness is that foundation. And now we enter into the experience of becoming more fully human um, by taking that worthiness to our relationships, not trying to get a sense of worthiness from them, but expressing our sense of worthiness within them. So that's what we're shifting into. Um, and uh, I thought what I'd do is I would read the very beginning of this section of Lovable. So this part of the companion book maps on directly to Act 2 of Lovable. Um, and so I'm going to read the very beginning of that, and then we'll... we'll uh, talk about your reactions to these months coming up. So act two, belonging. You are not alone. To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. Ralph Waldo Emerson. And then the first chapter of act two is chapter 14 entitled, Why Loneliness Happens, How We Make It Worse, and What We Can Do to Make It Better. All I ever wanted was to belong, to wear that hat of belonging. And Lamott. Loneliness happens. It is as much a part of life as hunger and sunsets and funerals. It is simply what happens when we grow up and realize we have a universe inside of us to which no other person has access, and that every other person contains an unknowable universe as well. Loneliness is an unavoidable thing, and though it is usually unpleasant and sometimes quite painful, it might even be an essential thing, because it can become the seed of holy things, like our craving for connection our urge to belong, and our impulse to reach out and to reach up. Loneliness is the seed from which true togetherness can spring. If we cease to hide it and learn to reveal it, if we cease to be ashamed of it and learn to be connected in the midst of it, instead of seeking to be rescued from our loneliness, we can seek to be joined in it. This, of course, is far easier said than done, because most of us, as a little one, experienced a moment, or moments, in which we revealed who we truly were, made ourselves known, put ourselves out there, sought connection, and were left lonely anyway. 
Reflexively and unconsciously, we concluded our true self was the cause of our loneliness. We decided our true self was not worthy of closeness and togetherness, not worthy of belonging. So we began building another self, a false self. Then we buried our true self beneath it, though we have no idea that we've done it. So that's the opening section in Lovable um, about belonging. And uh, today we're going to be tracking really closely with that by starting to dig into this concept of loneliness and the ways that we try to minimize it and manage it early on and how that ends up just making us more and more lonely as we get sort of stuck behind a false self and our true self never really gets to contact the world. So we're going to be digging into all of that today. Um, and I am curious to hear more from you about what you're, what you're anticipating, expecting, um, nervous about whatever in these months of, of belonging. So I'm going to scroll back to see what you have to say. Julie writes, we can look into the abyss together. Paraphrase of Christopher Durang, tough to be comfortable with the abyss. Then there's comfort with others' abyss. That is a beautiful quote. Um, we can look into the abyss together. Um, and if we decide, if we conclude that loneliness is an abyss, which I think it's a great descriptor, um, that the, the idea of cultivating true belonging is not eliminating loneliness because that just puts too much pressure on our relationships and it always fails um, but the process is looking into the abyss of our loneliness together and you discover that when you can look into your loneliness with someone else you know ironically your loneliness dissipates a little bit it may not go away completely um, but it is eased and uh, and that's what we want to see in these months of belonging is that our loneliness begins to get eased by looking into our loneliness together sharing our loneliness with each other, sharing our brokenness, sharing our mess. Um, that's what we're aiming for here. So thanks for that quote to start us off, Julie. It couldn't be a better, a better summary for us. We can look into the abyss together. Deb W. writes, I'm really excited about the direction you're taking us. It feels like the natural next step. Um, yeah, thanks, Deb. I, that, you know, I go back to that, that story where I, I sent these three ideas to my agent when I was contemplating constructing the book, Worthiness, Belonging, and Purpose, and she said, um, she, she said, well, why do you keep sending me these three ideas, worthiness, purpose, and belonging? And I said, no, 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 it's worthiness, then belonging, and then purpose. That's the way we grow. That's the way we develop spiritually and emotionally and relationally. And, uh, and belonging, I do believe, is the natural next step. It flows from our sense of worthiness. Um, and, uh, but the thing we have to remember, and it's why I, I structured Lovable in the, in the structure of Act 1 and Act 2 and Act 3, is that in the second act of any story, things get messy. Things get complicated and tense. You know, in Act 1, you're sort of discovering who the characters are. You're falling in love with them. In Act 2, those characters sort of venture out and go on their journey, and they run into all sorts of hurdles and obstacles and setbacks, and it looks, it looks like things might end up going badly for them, almost always in Act 2. Um, and so this, these months of belonging are, are months that are, are challenging in many ways. We are setting out into the world with sort of, sometimes it's just this fledgling sense of worthiness. And now we are tasked with the vulnerability of beginning to express and show some of that worthiness, show some of our true self, announce who we are. That can be really intense. And so these are gonna be challenging months, um, but we're gonna, we're gonna face that challenge together. Julie goes on, so nice to have a community with other people learning from each other and feeling less alone. Julie, thanks for that. I mean, I do hope that something that is happening here, both for people who are showing up live and people who are listening in to the podcast episodes a week later, um, that 
a sense of belonging is already taking place. That by showing up, you are expressing, I'm worthy of this space. I'm worthy of, of listening in, of taking time for myself, of, of cultivating my, my own growth. Um, that by, just by showing up, by listening in, you're expressing your sense of worthiness. And now when a bunch of people come together to do that, uh, belonging is the natural outgrowth of that. So I do hope that there is a sense of belonging that is happening in the midst of this and that we're all feeling already a little bit less alone because we're doing this together. Deb W. writes, love that analogy of the abyss, Julie. I find when I acknowledge that loneliness and share it with others, I realize I'm surrounded by so many who would say, me too. And that makes the shame that would try to creep in not have anywhere to land. That is a great way to say it, Deb. Um, one, one of the things that we explored very early in that act to unlovable is this idea that loneliness happens. It's a natural part of being human, but our shame quickly comes in and says, well, you're lonely because you're not good enough. You're lonely because no one wants to be with you. Um, and so when we can reveal our loneliness to others and hear that, those two beautiful, beautiful words, me too, right? What we begin to very quickly realize is that our loneliness isn't our fault. <laughs> it's not a sign of our brokenness or our badness or our unworthiness to belong. It's part of the human experience. Um, and so we can connect in our loneliness and suddenly feel slightly less alone. Um, and to me, that's, a, that's, that's all we can ask for. And uh, what we usually discover is, is it's really all we need. Um, that's what we've been seeking all along. So before we jump right into this next um, section, I thought, and I, I, it's in Lovable somewhere, I don't remember where I put it, but it's one of my favorite stories, anecdotes, I guess, that to me illustrates the, the tension and the complexity of this bridge between worthy, the worthiness work and the belonging work. And it's an anecdote that was told by Peter Rollins at a talk that I heard him at, and uh, it goes something like this. It's, a, it's sort of a joke. Um, this man calls up uh, a psychiatrist and says, doctor, I need to see you immediately. I think I'm seed on the ground, and it's, it's terrifying to me. I feel vulnerable. I feel like I'm seed on the ground. And the, psych, the psychoanalyst says, you know, come on in. Uh, we'll, we'll work on it. And they work five days a week for, you know, a number of years. And eventually the, the, the man knows that he's a human being. He's not seed on the ground. Um, and the doctor declares him cured, and they, they end the, the, the therapy, and they discharge him. But then several weeks later, the man calls back, just frantic. And the doctor picks up the phone. He says, doctor, I need to come in immediately. And the doctor says, what's up? And he says, I've got new neighbors next door and they have chickens. And the doctor says, well, you know you're not seed on the ground, so what's the problem? And the, the man says, I know I'm not seed on the ground, but do the chickens know? Um, and to me, that represents the complexity of I know I'm worthy now. I've embraced my worthiness and my true self. But are other people going to do that? Will they see my true self and honor it? Or will they treat me as something different? Um, and that's the rub. That's the vulnerability of these months of belonging initially, um, is beginning to, um, to enter into that, that, um, that vulnerable zone of I'm beginning to reveal my worthiness without necessarily the reassurance yet that other people will, will honor it and affirm it. So um, we're getting into all that in these next months and we're going to get into it and get through it so let's do it together deb f writes yes i'm now starting to see that not everyone in my life is embracing my worthiness it's been an eye-opener um, so deb you are anticipating something that's going to come somewhere in the middle of these months of belonging 
this idea that as we begin to embrace our worthiness and reveal it, we start to realize there are people in our life who aren't interested um, in who we truly are, can't embrace it, can't affirm it. And then we have to make some very difficult decisions about what to do and with those relationships. And so I talk about this in Lovable and we'll talk about it here that um, typically um, as you begin to reveal your true self and uh, cultivate belonging, um, your, your circles of belonging actually shrink at first as you realize that, oh, they're, they're, they're not going to be my people <laughs> and that that's okay. You can, you can release them to go find the, the people that they do want to, to embrace and affirm. Um, and so our circles of belonging shrink at first and then ultimately though deepen. Um, and, uh, and that's what we want to see is that deepening of our circles of belonging. Brenda writes, Oh, like I know I'm odd and I'm okay with me, but can others be comfortable with me? Exactly. Exactly. We talked about that, right? Um, better to be hap happy and quirky um, than miserable and um, trying to fit in. And that's exactly it. It's, I know it's okay for me to be odd, but once I start revealing that oddness, um, will others will others embrace that or will they not? And some will and some won't. And that's the tension, right? Um, some, some of the chickens will peck you like your seed on the ground and some will see your true humanity and, and honor it. Um, and, and that's the tension of these months of belonging that we're starting to get, get into. Um, Julie writes, Brenda, you said it in a great condensed way. It's fear of rejection. Kelly, do you want to weigh in some more? Um, yes, I'd be happy to. Um, I would say that, uh, belonging requires vulnerability. And vulnerability is defined by a fear of rejection. Um, this is not about, I've embraced my worthiness, so now I have no fear, and I just go out in the world, and it's all easy finding places to belong. Um, actually, cultivating a sense of worthiness leads us to more fear, because it gives us just enough courage, just enough trust and in, in faith in ourselves to begin to reveal ourselves. And if it's not, if there isn't a fear of rejection associated with what we're doing in life, then it's not really vulnerability, right? Um, and so, uh, so yeah, absolutely. Fear of rejection is integral to the process of building belonging. Um, and what we wanna do in the midst of that fear is trust that there's a bigger truth, that our worthiness is truer than our fear. But it doesn't mean our fear necessarily goes away. Our worthiness doesn't banish it, doesn't cause it to evaporate. It just causes us to have something more solid to stand on in the midst of that fear. Missy writes, there's nothing more beautiful than the authentic self. Someone I thought accepted me for me once told me I needed to change a part of me before meeting someone for a date. It felt great to combat that with, really? I have many people in my life that love that part of me. Yeah, you're getting at something really important there, Missy, which is if we start off a relationship by putting our true self away, bringing out a false self, right, a representative or persona to go out there and meet people because we think that that's what's going to earn their favor, we're really in trouble later in that relationship because um, now as our true self emerges, the person goes, wait a second, you're changing. And you're going, no, I'm just being myself, but in a sense you are changing. Um, you're shifting from that false self you put out there at first back to the true self that you actually are. Now this person feels like they've, they've been bait and switched. So it's essential, especially when we know we're at one of those moments where we're beginning a, a long-term relationship or hopefully beginning one, um, it's essential that we be beginning that relationship from our true self rather than our, our false self. Deb F writes, I am liking this authentic self I'm rediscovering. I find that even with my quirks that people tend to be comfortable with them if I am comfortable with them. And if they are not okay with it, that's fine. Um, Deb, thanks for that affirmation that we all need right now. 
um, that the general rule will be that if we're comfortable with our quirkiness and our oddness, other people will be as well. There will be those select people who aren't, like you said, then it's okay. You can release those people, allow them to be not okay with you. Um, but that if people get a genuine sense that we are truly at peace with ourselves, um, they will be too. In fact, they'll sort of probably admire it, <laughs> you know, like they'll want a little of what you're having in a sense. And, um, and so that, that is going to be more the experience I think that we come out of this with. So yeah, wow, this is, um, a fantastic discussion so far um, and I could keep going I think and I think we all could but it also makes me want to start to get started with these months of loving so um, let's begin um, where that lovable passage in act two left off and focus on this experience of loneliness and the importance of changing the way we relate to it and relate from it um, with its chapter uh, 18 or week 18 in uh, the year of listening loving and living entitled a kid named lonely here it is I want to tell you about a kid named Lonely. The kid is genderless and ageless and all of us. He's the little boy curled up in his dark bedroom, listening to the yelling in the kitchen below. She's the little girl growing up in a house with vacant eyes and big, distracted people. Lonely is the kid on the playground, staring at the impenetrable huddles of his peers. Lonely is the boy waiting in the drizzle for the ride that isn't coming. Lonely is the girl whose boyfriend sees her body but not her heart. Lonely is three touchdowns on Friday night and no one sober enough to share it with. He's the growing man in a freshman dorm surrounded by noise and scared to death. She's the first day of a new job in a bustling cafeteria but a table of one. Lonely is the earnest effort to reveal your heart to the people around you and confusion on the faces of the people you love and want to be loved by. As long as you are human and breathing, there is a lonely kid with big eyes and a trembling heart somewhere inside of you. Loneliness hurts like a badly sprained ankle. We may not be aware of it until we stand on it, until we try to love and live, and then the pain shoots through us. A few torn ligaments in your ankle and there's no way around it, you will need crutches. Our loneliness works the same way, but our loneliness crutches aren't made of wood, they're made of other things. We think we can fill up the lonely places inside of us with a crowd. We seek popularity and numbers. We join the basketball team or the cheerleading squad. We collect a billion friends on Facebook, but we ultimately discover the lonely space is bottomless and no crowd is big enough to fill it. We think we can erase the loneliness problem with sex. At the moment of orgasm, most people will describe a sense of oneness with their sexual partner, even if they don't know their name. The distinction between self and other is erased and our loneliness is obliterated for a moment. But by the time we wake up, our psychic walls have returned and we are lonely again. So we become addicted to the sexual experience. We think we can conquer our loneliness with achievement, as lonely little boys and girls, we look around and the winners seem to be saturated with attention and adoration, so we find something to conquer. We seek fame and wealth and accolades, yet when the admiration rolls in, the loneliness seems bigger than ever. We wind up with big jobs and big houses and an even bigger hole gaping in our hearts. We do our best to solve our loneliness problem, but our best efforts leave us even more alone than before. So what do we do next? We marry one person. We concentrate our efforts. We expect one person to take away all of our loneliness. But if the many can't heal our loneliness, how can the one? They can't. Despite our best efforts, we will come to discover that in this life, our loneliness can never be taken away completely. But the hopelessness of this possibility seems too much to endure, so instead we blame. We accuse the people we love of being defective. We get bitter and angry and resentful. And secretly, we believe we are the cause of our loneliness. 
Shame tells us we're not worthy of connection and belonging, so we pretend we're somebody else in the hope that the somebody else will finally earn us the kind of connection we've been craving. In the process, we make our loneliness complete. Here's the fundamental flaw with that way of trying to heal our loneliness. Places of belonging are not meant to be places where our loneliness is taken away. They are meant to be places where we reveal our loneliness to one another. They are not places in which we eradicate our loneliness. They are places in which we make it available to someone else. A sense of belonging happens when we feel a little less alone in the world because we discover we're not the only one feeling alone in the crowd. With belonging, we don't become free from loneliness. We become free for loneliness. And the healing is in this. Once you have made your loneliness available to one of your people, a friend, a lover, a spouse, you will no longer need to eradicate it. You will be able to touch it without fear and despair. You may feel hopeless to fix it, but you will be filled with the hope that comes from being joined in it. This is the love that results from truly revealing who we are. Several years ago, as I was walking out of a restaurant with a friend, he turned to me and said, it was good to talk to you tonight. I feel a little less alone in the world because of it. A little less alone. It felt just right. No burden to take away all of each other's loneliness. An acknowledgement that companionship can happen in the midst of a mutual loneliness, perhaps even because of a mutual loneliness. How often do you expect the ones closest to you to take away all of your loneliness? And when they don't, in what ways do you blame, criticize, resent, or distance yourself from them? Our relationships are not intended to erase our loneliness. They are intended to be a place where our loneliness is shared. There is just enormous challenges in that reading that we are going to be slowly unpacking and digging into over the course of the next uh, next four months. So while you're gathering your thoughts about that reading, because there's a lot in there, I thought I'd share some background with you about the writing of um, of Lovable that is alluded so the 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 impulse for the, for Lovable is sort of alluded to in this in this week. Um, you know I. I mentioned marriage in this in this writing today, and um, when I first got connected with an agent and there was talk about me writing a book, um, I had a lot of, of people, publishers, who wanted me to write a book about marriage. That, that was some of my most um, well-read content at that point was about marriage, and people wanted me to write a marriage book. Um, but I felt very strongly that I needed to sort of put marriage in its place first with a different book, <laughs> um, that I needed to situate, because I felt like so much of the literature on marriage and so much of the self-help on marriage and so much of what people were seeking from marriage was to make my loneliness go away. And if my marriage isn't delivering on that, what's wrong with it? How can I fix it? And so on and so forth. And I wanted to instead sort of situate the marital relationship and really all places of belonging within the context of our worthiness and trusting that our loneliness doesn't make us unworthy, that our loneliness uh, makes us human and that we can share it and we don't have to expect our marriages or any other place of belonging to make it go away completely. Um, so that really was a huge part of the impetus behind the formation of lovable as it has eventually turned out. So um, that's alluded to here in this book, and it's it's so core to these months of of loving and and cultivating belonging. So I think it's it's worth reiterating again. <laughs> Heather writes, "Oh, so much I don't even know where to begin." <laughs> yeah, there's a lot in there. Like I said, Heather, this is um, this is something. This is lay, laying you know sort of setting the table, and we'll be dining on it <laughs> for the rest of uh, these months of belonging. So. Um, if it feels like a lot, it's because it is. It's it's uh, it's a lot to start with. 
Brenda writes, agreed. Reading lovable makes other relationship how to fix it books unnecessary. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's the way that I approach couples therapy these days is um, I oftentimes uh, will, if I sense that there's in, in either, usually both spouses, that there's a worthiness issue underlying the marital problems, um, we'll press pause on the marital therapy, get people their own individual therapists, and oftentimes what you discover is that the marital therapy becomes unnecessary. That once those worthiness issues are, are, um, are repaired or the worthiness is re-embraced in each of these partners, then when they come together, belonging begins to happen more naturally um, and the, the couple's therapy isn't necessary. So thrilled to hear Brenda that it feels like lovable makes um, a lot of relationship how to fix it books unnecessary by not focusing first on relationships <laughs> but for focusing first on our relationship to ourself Marv writes once we begin to embrace our own worthiness we begin to be out of step with the rest of society yeah you begin to embrace your own worthiness and you become more of an outlier in a sense and yet you you care less about being an outlier it's okay to be an outlier. Um, and, uh, and yeah, a lot of times, I mean, I talk about how, you know, for instance, shame is one of the most effective ways to control people. So if we've embraced our worthiness and we are not so much at the mercy of other people's shame, we also aren't as easily controlled by people. And we talked about that in the months, the, the, the mess will set you free episode. Um, so we are less in step sort of with the way everyone's working, less under the control of the way that other people work. And, uh, and yet we're more at peace with it. And there's, there's something beautiful about that. So I'd, I'd be curious to hear what other people think about that too. Deb F. writes, I realized how loneliness was the connector when I recently joined a retired secretary's group for lunch. We meet monthly. There are women who would not have typically been friends or even friendly to each other when we work together. Now we cannot wait to see each other and share our stories and ideas. That is really cool. And uh, I think that does bridge back actually, uh, Deb, to, to Marv's observation um, my, my experience is, is that when, when there's a, a sense of shame, when there's not a connection to our sense of worthiness, then we organize our circles of, actually, I think Brene Brown calls it counterfeit belonging. So I'll steal her phrase. And we organize our circles of counterfeit belonging around shared interests, you know, shared, uh, sort of worldviews, shared political beliefs. But as we begin to embrace our worthiness, what we tend to organize our circles of true belonging not around those kinds of things but we start connecting with other people who have also embraced their worthiness it doesn't matter necessarily uh you know what their opinions are about this issue or that issue it doesn't matter that they don't like golfing like you do what matters is that there's this deep sense of worthiness that is shared and so it is a it's a it's a place where everyone can be celebrated and that becomes the the sort of the guiding characteristic um and so, uh, you know, I, I, I wonder if that's sort of what is, is happening in the midst of that group, Deb. Kristen Kay says, since society wants us to hustle for our worthiness through pleasing and perfecting, I'm really okay with it. A huge burden lifted. Oh, Kristen, thanks for that addition, right? Um, since society wants us to hustle for our worthiness through pleasing and perfecting, I'm okay with being out of step with society, right? Isn't that so true? Being out of step means setting down a burden. Um, it, it, it reminds me of, uh, you know, that, that pithy, that short, sometimes confusing line of, 
of Jesus's when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, right? He's existing in a culture where there's all sorts of rules about what you have to do, how you have to eat, how you have to behave, how you have to look, uh, how you have to speak in order to be worthy. And and he comes in and, and, and says, you are you are worthy the way you are you are lovable the way you are and uh, and that is a that is an easy burden um or a light burden rather so um yes may we may we get out of step quickly with a culture that wants to um tell us that we have to please everybody and be perfect in order to belong and may we get into step with a, a sense of worthiness that says those things aren't necessary Missy writes, I was never more lonely than when I was married. I thought I was marrying my life partner to love, live, and play with. I was possibly trying to fill some loneliness needs, but I do think do think I was. I wanted my partner in life. That's not what it was, and I became someone I didn't know from the correcting of behavior and shame. My journey for self-love afterward has been a beautiful journey, and the one relationship I've had since was so enriching and blossomed more. But I find that with all healthy, authentic relationships I have with both um, with both men and women. Yeah, I, um, mar- marriage, um, when it is doing what it is, is designed to do for us, is, is a place where we learn how to put down, begin to, to dismiss our false self and enter more fully into a relationship with our true self. But so often the focus is on, I have to fix it, I have to get this from it, I have to do that, and so I'll do whatever it takes to try to get those things. And if that means burying my true self away, and, uh, and, and building more and more of a false self to try to, to make this marriage what I think it should be, then it ends up doing the opposite of what it's supposed to. Um, and then we can ultimately discover there are other relationships where we find um, we're able to enter into more authentically. Um, and so, uh, Missy, it sounds like your experience in marriage echoes my concern about um, writing a marriage book first without, without putting this worthiness piece before it. Um, and so uh, I'm sorry you had the experience, but I'm, I delight with you that you are um, discovering more and more places now where you can, can truly belong and show up. So the, this discussion is, um, is focusing us on this, this really big task of, of relearning the way that we relate to our loneliness and relate from our loneliness. And the question is, how do we begin to change the way we relate to it? Um, and week 18 is, is one way to begin thinking about how we change the way we relate to our loneliness. So let's, let's read that now. Week 18 practice. Most of us believe that our loneliness is a sign of our faultiness. So we hide it and our truest self deep down inside of us. And we ask other people to make us feel better. It is not until we have embraced our truest, worthiest self that we begin to realize that some of our loneliness is simply a natural artifact of being alive. Then we are free to connect within it rather than trying to connect to get rid of it. If you are human, you are probably putting too much pressure on at least one of your relationships to take away your loneliness. This week, we will focus on beginning to embrace our people by embracing our loneliness first. Ultimately, we can disrupt the cycle of disappointment and blame in our relationships by sharing our lonely experiences. So this week, grab a piece of paper, a pencil, and some quiet space. Then, number one, in writing or with pictures, identify your earliest memory of feeling lonely with your family, in a classroom, on the playground, on an operating table, whatever it may be for you. Again, number one, in writing or with pictures, identify your earliest memory of feeling lonely. Number two, Identify your most lonely memory of childhood. 
a time when you felt completely on your own, perhaps even abandoned, discarded, or neglected. Again, number two, identify your most lonely memory of childhood. And again, write it down or draw it out, whatever you need to do. Number three, identify a time more recently in adulthood when you felt similar feelings of loneliness and blamed it on someone close to you. What did you say? What did you attribute your loneliness to? Again, number three, now identify a time where recently in adulthood when you felt similar feelings and blamed it on somebody close to you. And finally, number four, write a letter of confession to that person. Begin the letter something like this. Dear so-and-so, I blame you for my loneliness, but the truth is I felt lonely long before you came into my life, so you can't be responsible for all of it. Then go on to share your reflections from number one and two. And again, this is one of those exercises where I'm not saying necessarily send it. <laughs> so I go on. If this feels especially difficult for you to do right now, whether because it feels too vulnerable or you might not trust the person to whom you're writing to respond constructively, that's okay. You can write the letter, but don't send it. In the coming weeks, we're going to be working through some of the factors that make this practice di difficult. Perhaps you will be ready to send the letter in the future. These things take time and a different amount of time for every person. If you find this exercise impossible and you are quickly realizing you're not quite ready for these months of loving, that's okay too. You can press the pause on press the pause button on this year. Return to week one if you want to. Cycle through the months of listening once again. As you progress through the listening exercises again, when you feel ready to engage in this exercise, you'll know you're ready for the months of loving. So that's the conclusion of this practice. The schedule of, of us being ready to enter into some of the risk and vulnerability of belonging, that has to be our schedule. It can't be Kelly's podcast schedule. It can't be the schedule of our, even our shame could come in at this point and go, well, you should be ready for this now. You know, you did these, you did these weeks, these practices, now you should be ready. Who says? Who says that? Um, if, if, you, if you need to press pause and go back and continue to cultivate that inward journey, feel free to do it. Um, there is no shame in that. Um, but maybe there's a middle ground there where you say, I could write a letter like this and not send it. Now I want to give just a little bit more background to the practice, and then I want to hear what you have to say. This is one of the more common exercises that I will do in couples therapy, because what you discover in couples therapy oftentimes is that you have two people coming in blaming the other person for their loneliness, and the issue is that they're blaming each other for all of their loneliness. It's sort of like they've convinced themselves that um, I was fine when I entered the marriage, and now I have all this loneliness, so it must be on you. And so what we're trying to do here is just sort of, um, in ourselves, sort of break up that um, belief that whatever loneliness I'm having in relationships right now is due entirely to these present relationships, and to become more aware that loneliness has been with us for a long time. Um, there's no human being that has not experienced some degree of loneliness from the very beginning. And sure, the people we're with now can trigger it and stir it up, but it's not all on them. And if we relate to them as if it is all on them, um, we are putting a burden on them and a blame on them that they, that they shouldn't be bearing. So we want to just break up that belief a little bit and start to embrace the scope of our loneliness across our life rather than just kind of what it is right now. Julie writes, not needing to please others for our self-worth can generate a sense of outrage and how dare you from people who want us to play nice with the shaming and pleasing script because it's the script they are reading from. Geez, it sounds like justified hazing when I put it that way. I love both of those ways of saying it, Julie, ju justified hazing, um, the shaming and pleasing script. Uh, yeah, there will be people who don't like it. Um, there will be people who um, it, it 
it creates anxiety because they feel like that they're not in control of the interaction anymore. They're not able to manage you and control you the way that they used to. And that's anxiety provoking. Um, and so as best we can, I think from our true self, we can sort of see through the anger <laughs> um, to the, the fear underneath in that reaction and, um, and have some grace that, uh, yeah, yeah, you can't control me and that makes you anxious and I totally get that. I totally get why that would not be pleasant for you. Um, but I'm not gonna let you do it. <laughs> Heather writes, how funny it is that I've already identified my three things but I'm not sure I'd ever be comfortable doing number three because I'm still angry at the person who made me the loneliest. Haven't completely let that go. Yeah. A really wise person said to me this week, I don't know if I can embrace my worthiness without getting angry at the people who made me feel unworthy. Right? I think you're saying the same thing. I don't, I'm not sure I can really truly embrace the full scope of my loneliness without getting angry at the people who were in part responsible for some of it. And that's okay. Uh, let me just, like, that's okay. That's a normal reaction, right? Um, there, There's nothing wrong with that. Um, you don't want to act on it. Acting angry at the people who made you lonely, I guarantee will not make you feel less lonely. <laughs> um, it's, it's that moment to sort of pause and decide from our sense of worthiness, from our true self, what we want to do with that, that anger, which is totally valid. Um, it's just about kind of cultivating wisdom in, in what we do with that, that anger. Um, and later in these weeks of, of loving, we'll talk about how sometimes anger can become, if we harness it and use it wisely, it can become the fuel for healthy boundaries, actually. Um, and I think, Heather, you already alluded to that. So, um, so yeah, it's okay to feel that, that anger. Um, and then to eventually begin to cultivate really healthy boundaries with it. So um, well, we're going to be talking about all that. So I'm excited to do it. Brenda writes, odd question. What if you don't really have childhood memories? Does it matter? Only remember logically taking myself through the loneliness as a teenager and then as an adult. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people who, um, who don't have vivid childhood memories. They'd say that their memories start kind of more into adolescence. And there's nothing nothing wrong with that. What I what I would say is that you, people are often surprised when when they give themselves permission to sort of exist in that space. Um, again, it's not rushing to come up with a memory, but it's just existing in that space. Um, some people sometimes people are surprised at the, the the ways that they do reconnect with memories of loneliness that they that they hadn't had before um, but there's no pressure about that that it's you know um, maybe in this exercise replacing your earliest childhood memory you'd say your earliest teenage memory right and that's totally okay there's no pressure to um, to to be the to have the earliest memory in the group um, whatever it is for you is totally fine um, and the the first memory that stands out when regardless of when it happened in your life is going to be an important one because it, it it remained in memory for a reason right um, it's it probably in part shaped the way that you experience yourself in relationships so whatever that is that one is totally good enough Deb F writes. Yep, Heather, I'm with you on this. This is a work in progress for me. I grew up experiencing loneliness in a large family. Um, yeah, and you know, the something that I, I recall clarifying this week with somebody is that loneliness isn't aloneness. In fact, I just had this really vivid memory out of nowhere, probably about fourth grade. Um, 
I was driving past the school that I was attending in fourth grade while the snow was coming down here recently, and I suddenly had this flashback of it was the, it was almost dark. Um, there were big snowflakes coming down, and I, you know the, the 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 neighborhood was covered with snow, so everything was totally silent. And I was looking up into the snowflakes coming down. And they were landing on my eyelashes, and I was trying to catch them with my mouth. And when I had that memory, I had an experience of intense joy. Um, I was completely alone. Um, but that aloneness was solitude, not loneliness, and it was joyful. Um, so we're talking about loneliness, which can happen in a big crowd, um, often happens in big families, um, not sometimes because the families are dysfunctional or broken, but sometimes just because they're big and there's not enough attention to go around, right? It's just part of being alive. Um, and so that's what, we're, that's what we're aiming for here is those, those experiences of loneliness. Sometimes loneliness can be... Um, I'm in, a, I'm in a family that's really engaged and attentive, but I have a feeling if I let my true self show, they'd quit being so engaged and attentive, right? Um, so my, my, my belonging here depends upon me being a certain way. Well, that's a very lonely experience. Now your true self has to go, go away and, and hide, hide away alone. So, um, so there's very different ways that we can experience loneliness and we can be totally alone and not experience it. So that's what we're aiming for is just to get reconnected with some of those experiences over time so that we can begin to change our, the way we relate to it. Thanks as always, everyone. Uh, this has been a really a great start to these months of listen, of loving. Thank you so much for your vulnerability, uh, for your wisdom, for your contributions. I'm really grateful for it. Next week, we're going to be focusing on week 19, which is entitled From Limping Lonely to Loving Together. Until then, remember, you can be lonely and lovable all at the same time. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, Sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. <laughs>